The interim between last episode and this one has been absolutely crazy. We saw many of you at College Art Association Conference in Los Angeles. We made and hosted a pub trivia game with an artsy twist and celebrity art judges. We recorded new episodes you'll be hearing soon and made some truly amazing new friends. Thanks, y'all. Your inclusion in this podcast is what makes it authentic, and your participation makes us able to help more people and do more good, which makes us feel warm and squishy inside. Go artists! This episode was supposed to drop next week, but since a snowstorm is ravaging the East Coast, our flight to the ceramics conference got canceled. We're bummed. Thank you to Josh Green at Ensika for doing everything in his power to move evil clouds for us, but these California babes weren't going to last long in single-digit temps. In the meantime, please enjoy this episode with the one and only Hunter Drehoska Philp, writer, critic, poodle enthusiast, and one crooning half of the KCRW show Art Talk, which you can find on iTunes or support public radio and visit their website at kcrw.com. When I used to work several really shitty jobs, I used to listen to Hunter and Edward on my morning commute and think, there has got to be more than this stupid job, and I would count the exits to my employer. Now I get to present this phenomenal lady in conjunction with what we hope is real change, and that too makes us feel warm and squishy. Take it away, Hunter. Right. My name is Hunter Drohoyoska Philp. I'm happy to be here talking to people about the art world. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. I've been doing it for a long time. Right now, I work as the art critic for KCRW, but I've worked for many other people over the years. I was the first art critic for the LA Weekly when it first started back in 1979 or 80 or when I first came to LA. And there was a shortage of art critics, which there isn't today, which is a good thing. And then went to the Herald Examiner as a more like a, a writer than a, than a mm-hmm. critic because my friend Christopher Knight was the critic. And then on to the LA Times and then all along the way writing for art magazines and glossy magazines and shelter magazines. And then I worked for a stint at Otis College of Art and Design, which at the time I started was Otis Art Institute. And I was the chair of liberal arts and sciences there. Uh, hired by a dean, Roger Workman. He sort of stepped out of the box really to hire me because I don't come from an academic background. I come from a studio background, not even a studio background. I come from an art department background. I went to art school. But by that time, I'd done a lot of writing, and I had done this TV show for uh, KCET that had d- done some stuff on Otis and on MacArthur Park and their public art program there, which was started by Al Nodell. Mm-hmm. And... I think he just thought I could bring something to the position, and I think I did for nine years. I did that. I brought in a lot of people who were sort of not Otis types, I guess. It was at that point, and really for many years afterward, it was very studio-based in a good way. I mean, they still taught all the basics of drawing and painting and those kinds of things. But by ni- early 1980s, uh, CalArts had, had, had a significant impact on the way art was taught in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, I happened to be friends with many of those artists, so a lot of them were brought into Otis to teach, to uh, lecture. Uh, and looking back, it was really quite an interesting roster of people that I brought in with the help of my friends. I mean, we had Christopher. Mm-hmm. Christopher Williams was a taught three classes a week, and he we would bring like Albert Erlen to come give a talk to like three people. And he would uh, he would bring in the uh, the other Germans, and he would uh, he was so insightful on so many levels. We also had uh, he and he brought in just a lot of his friends from CalArts, but there were lots of people. We'd bring in Benjamin Buchlow, we would bring in J- Jeremy Gilbert Roth from Art Center. We would bring in people who really had more theoretical backgrounds, which was very helpful, I think, to the way the Otis program evolved in terms of integrating the studio practice with the more uh, li- liberal arts practice. Uh, so that's what I did at Otis. I did it for nine years very happily. And then I was able to, when I left, I was finally able to finish a, a book on George O'Keefe. I'd been working on this book for many, many years, 
when I got the contract to write a biography of Georgia O'Keeffe, I did it right after she passed away. I have written a lot, but I'd never written a book, so I had no idea what I was signing a contract to do. I'd written it because I'd done an obituary on Georgia O'Keeffe for Art News Magazine, and I was a contributing editor there, and I was writing for them a lot. And it was a good big feature piece. Based on that, uh, my agents were able to sell the book to Knopf. And then even when I got the contract, my agent said, and my editor both said, you know, I, I don't know if you can finish this book and work at Otis. And I thought, I thought, yes, but I probably can't afford to not do that. So I worked on it in the summers, and I traveled to New Mexico every summer, and I traveled to New York, to New York City and to the East Coast and to Lake George in the summers, and I did my research and my work, and I was able to work on it and write a lot. But it was after I left Otis that I was able to finish it. And it really did require, anyone who's out there trying to finish a big book, it does require a lot of, for me, full-time attention. So then George O'Keefe came out, and that was about 2004, and it was massive. It's like 700 pages long. Other biographies came out before I finished that book, under the impetus of, my, of, of the same thing, that O'Keefe has died, now and someone can tell the real story. But in my own defense, something to be said for being the last, because I had the benefit of everybody else's errors and their new information, but I just became sort of maniacal about cleaning up a lot of the errors in previous O'Keefe writing. And that turned out to be a good thing for that book because I, I, that book's still in print today and I, I stand by that book as a solid book. When they did a retrospective at the Tate in London a few years ago, that book was you know, sold very well at the bookstore. It's still a popular book. W.W. W. Norton released it in America and in, in England under a, the imprint in England. And I'm proud of that book, and it, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot about mm -hmm. what to do and what not to do when writing a 700-page a book. <laughs> I mean, the book isn't that long. I think the footnotes are like 120 pages, which I feel strongly about because I think that there's a tendency since, you know, remember, I'm a pre-internet writer, so there's a tendency now to sort of overlook the necessity for detailed footnotes on the sources of your information. And I've recently come across this uh, for a bi big biography that came out recently from a well-known writer for The New Yorker who essentially plagiarized huge sections of another book that I wrote without giving me credit. And I was so... Ooh, name some names. Let's get a witch on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, gonna, I'm writing a letter to his publisher and to, his, to him. Dear and, jerk. You know, it's me. The lady you copied. <laughs> well, I, and I, th I, w I think part of it is just that the, the cutting and pasting off the internet. This particular example is egregious because his assistant, I don't, don't work with an assistant as a writer. A lot of biographers do. I never have. I wouldn't do that. Maybe I would now, but I didn't do it. I think they have their assistant get a lot of information. So the assistant writes to me and says, the author wants to see your original interview with this famous person. And I, I generously... Mm -hmm. you know, send them to him my interview to use, for which he does not footnote me. So since that's all an email, when his publishers get it, they'll probably have a heart attack. But it's, uh, it's not, it's, I'm also very lazy. It's like it's been over a year that I was performing this act of retribution that hasn't happened yet. But I am also somebody who just would really rather get on with things. But it really, it kind of sticks in me. And I have to, I feel like I have to address it because... I think it's common under the internet that people just take stuff and they don't have any idea that they're supposed to footnote it, they're supposed to uh, credit the original author, they don't have any idea that it's so much work to get those interviews and so much labor, unpaid mostly. Anyway, so that's how I got as far as George O'Keefe and my George O'Keefe biography. So that's me in a nutshell. What else would you like to know? How did you get wrangled into the Smithsonian archives? Ah. Well, it wasn't really wrangling. It was actually quite easy. I've, I've always done a lot of interviews with artists, and I happen to really enjoy that process. And I think I'm all kind of I'm comfortable with artists, in part because I was an artist, and I do approach them a little bit differently than people who come straight through art history or critical theory. I feel like I'm really more pleased that they're very organic and in their decision-making. I mean, I don't think everything has to be thought out in advance. So much of my writing is supportive of any kind of conceptual or intellectually based art that is a preference of mine. I still think that, you know, the best art can't really be fully manifested that way. That a lot of the decisions that are great in art that make it baffling and fabulous to us as viewer to me as a viewer are just like 
whatever you know they just like a few things come together somehow in someone's mind or their 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 inside somehow and that and they manifest in a really interesting way so when i interview artists i say something i just say and i, I also don't particularly care how they make anything and in art history in particular there's there is a lot of emphasis on what you know materials you used how did you happen to use you know fiberglass instead of aluminum or how did you happen to use acrylic instead of oil or how did you happen to study figurative painting and give it up all of that is of interest to me but it, to me the most interesting thing is really why did you bother making art and i ran into this recently when i interviewed andrea zatel for the archives of american art and that was really my first question was like why bother i mean you know this is an, this project is like completely something that nobody would really want to necessarily undertake. Nobody can collect it. How are we going to sell this? <laughs> yes, it's non it's intentionally non-commercial. It's yeah. wildly ambitious. It embraces all the things about contemporary art practice that are associated with a, a feminine a femininity or a, we now use the word in, engendered in a certain way but these are these are things that historically were uh, important to women whether they're weaving or craft orientation or domesticity or even the idea that she only uses bowls to serve anything in the idea of what which bowls they are the clothing issues i mean it's all so based in a kind of woman's work that's been discarded, but she manages to make it so much a part of an important contemporary dialogue, which is both intuitive for her and intellectual, and that interests me, because if you really thought it through, no one in their right mind would really do that. You know, I mean, really, I mean, like any kind of, I shouldn't say right mind because it makes her sound like she's crazy. But I mean, if, if you really, <laughs> you thought, wouldn't spend your own money to do that. Well, you wouldn't spend your own money. Unless you, you're an artist. <laughs> unless you're an artist. And you would think, you would think it through and you would think, okay, this is really uh, like a time consuming, mm -hmm. hard way for me to spend my time. When I, I really could be going to the movies, I could be, you know, going on a beach vacation. I could be making a bunch of money and living in a house and raising my kids. I mean, I could do any of those things, but instead I'm choosing what is really a very rigorous decision-making process that for her and for many artists is just really their only choice. And I really believe that if you're going to be an artist in many ways, you had better feel that is your only choice because it's a very hard life for a lot of people. For most, yeah. and then for for, most artists. And then for <laughs> the lucky few, yeah. not so much. You know? How do you become one of the lucky few? I don't understand it. I mean, I come from a, a world that is, you know, before that time, you know, I don't understand how some people become so well-regarded and well-compensated for what I perceive as very minor contributions to the larger history of art, contemporary or modern. Uh, it, again, it's a post-internet development that people with really, I would think, kind of like really minor uh, skills often get pushed to a level where their work sells for quite a lot through a market structure that's become increasingly hard to comprehend and not necessarily entirely ethical, um, <laughs> right? Right, well, we know not that. Not necessarily <laughs> entirely <laughs> ethical. Well, ethical, well. and then but who, defines the, who, who defines the ethics of that, you know? But the whole idea of, you know, dealers who used to, like, you know, identify with someone like Alfred Stieglitz or they would identify with... Stieglitz was a dick. Well, he was a dick, but he also was so loyal to his artists. I mean, he never made any money, He was, which is bad for them. But he really, he showed so many people so early. He got it. He was the first person to show, you know, Matisse. He was the first, 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 first person in America to show Matisse and Picasso and the post-armory group of 1913. And he had such an extraordinary passion. And, of course, the first person to validate photography as a fine art form as opposed to a craft. Fuck yeah, Gertrude. <laughs> <laughs> he was really, he was great in, in many ways and completely also kind of bonkers in his way. But the idea that you just open this space, or the, the, the book I read most recently about um, Dick Bellamy, Richard Bellamy, Green Gallery, 1960s, New York City. There's a book called The Eye of the 60s by my friend Judith Stein, which really is also, here's somebody who really was only interested in showing certain artists whose work he liked and had absolutely no commercial sensibility at all, which didn't really bother, you know, Robert Morris or, you know, uh, or, you know, Mark de Souvereau at the time. It just wasn't in the thinking mm -hmm. that you were just doing this to make, a living. Uh, you did something else to make a living. 
and I think that that's, I think there are probably dealers who are still like, no, there are dealers who are still like that. I know there are. And we look up to them, but there are lots of people who have managed to sort of grab a different part of the market and sort of make, make it happen in a way that I think just baffles the rest of us. What's the dirtiest thing you've seen a gallerist do to an artist? Well, that's a hard uh, definition, you know, because I do think that dealers often find themselves in awkward positions. You know, I remember, uh, you know, sometimes, I mean, and dealers, you know, they have, they're, they, they end up owing people a lot of money, you know, and, and uh, like Dick Bellamy ended up owing, owing people a lot of money, and sometimes the, dar the artists were okay with that, and sometimes they weren't. They probably wouldn't be today. Uh, the expectations are so different. Uh, certainly dealers don't pay their, when dealers don't pay their artists, that's a terrible thing. I know of artists who say they've been owed millions of dollars. You know, they've, uh, I, have, I know a story that came out recently in an interview I did with the archives about an artist who was like literally owed so, many, so much money he had to sell his Tribeca studio to pay off his bills because his, his dealer had absconded with like millions of dollars worth of his inventory. And you know, it just, it, you hear these stories, and going back to the archives of American art, you often hear them from artists, and, and it's, it's their perspective, which is, I think, the most interesting thing about those interviews for me. And to just finish what you asked me is how I got involved. For, I mean, for years I did interviews for them, these are oral histories, which are long, and I like that two, on two for two reasons. One is they go on for days, and the artists just get to go on and on. And uh, the second part is that the artists get to edit them, not extensively, we really discourage that, but they get to sort of hold back some things that might not be comfortable for them in this lifetime, but will be fine in the longer history. Mm -hmm. And they also, uh, they go online, and they are really sort of first stop shopping for many art historians and curators and dealers everywhere in the world to find out the artist's version of something so they get used a lot in subsequent essays. And what I think is important is, okay, this is the artist telling people what the artist wants people to know. And I do think mostly artists are more interesting about their own work than most historians, a lot of writers, which is not to say some writers can't bring a lot to that viewpoint, but I really have, I'm always intrigued by what the artists have to say. So after doing these interviews for a while, uh, Liza Kerwin, deputy director of the Archives of American Art, uh, asked me if I would like to collect papers for them. I did that for a few years, and that's a part-time position where I would ask artists here if they would want to also donate their archival information to what is, actually, of course, the Smithsonian, and it's there forever. And that was a very interesting process in part because I was struck by how little artists knew about the archives of American art, or what it was, or why they should care. And I really became aware of how few artists had a game plan for after their own deaths. You know, they didn't, many, even really well-known artists didn't have a game plan for what's going to happen to all of their papers, their letters, their slides, their stuff, you know, you know, where is it going to go? Who's going to take care of it? And they kind of had left it in their family's care, in their, in their mind. But of course, their families don't know what to do with it. And it's such a, you know, the Getty does it, what also many places do this. The Getty Research Institute does this. Many places do this. But it's, a, it's one of those things that's so important for artists to know about that I was really gratified to sort of bring this information to them. And because of my own personal history, they at least would like listen to what I had to say. They'd go, oh, Hunter's here. OK, now what is this you're doing? And who does it? And who are these people? And I would sort of talk, talk to them about how the good parts of this and why it might be of interest to them. So is it an all or nothing when you're submitting to the archives? How do you mean? Um, let's say you wanted to take a, a gallerist's archive. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how we met. Mm -hmm. But the gallerist says, there's some things I want to leave out because they might be incriminating. <laughs> yes, no, they're allowed, to, they're allowed to keep those things out. They, they are allowed to control what goes there. I mean, I think in the old days, they would just give them everything. But again, it was a pre-internet era. There wasn't as much 
awareness of how one bad piece of paper can ruin your life. I recently, I took an archive and I was going through them and there was a, a naked photograph of a man, a very famous male artist here. Naked frontal, full frontal naked photograph of an artist you know very well. And was we it impressive? Him. It was impressive. All and right. it's the reason why he was a popular guy, it still is. But he was, uh, uh, I just turned to the artist, I said, Let's not, let's hold this back. Like, for a dude. While. You know, let's, we'll, we'll keep this back for a while. Let's just tuck we, this away. Let's, let's sort of see what happens with this. Because, you know, there's all, it's also true that it's in the old days that would just sort of molder away until some scholar used mm -hmm. it for uh, an essay. If anyone found it now, they would stick a snapshot of it and post it on Instagram. And that would be. And ruin you if they wanted to. Or just be embarrassing and just be a drag because the, you know, the other artist has passed away. He doesn't have to deal with the fallout of it. Right. And it's just maybe in like 50 years or 20 years, it'll be something that can come out. But at least he doesn't have to deal with it in his lifetime. So I believe there's a certain amount of respect that I, I apply to that, which is in opposition to what you do as a journalist many times. And, uh, and I like it better. I mean, I will stu still do nonfiction journalism. I mean, I'll still do that sort of non that literary nonfiction. But I, I, I've become less comfortable with trying to catch people or set them up or make them look one way or the other. Somebody else can do that now. I mean, the archi archives are such an interesting strategy in terms of, you know, we're dealing with the same thing as faculty at CalArts and the archives that they're now actually finally starting to talk about it. Um, they should have been doing it forever. Yes. But what's really interesting is the whole idea that you can actually submit and then you could actually take sections of what you submit and say, okay, this can be public at a certain period of time. After right? I die, or, these or files, something, right. 10 like, years after that, so these that, things. But, there, but, but it's so interesting, the idea of, of uh, taking your life and segmenting it up that way. And it's interesting how many artists don't think about archiving their work at all well not not their papers it's all about the work they're right. artists they're all usually meticulously organized and then their mm -hmm. stuff which is of course where the gist of their personal life is is not and right. uh and yes the archives of american art does the same thing i i, I did that with i've done it with a number of artists who said okay this is for the record this is to be held back the one and i don't know how this is actually going to play out the one that was most meaningful to me Really, I, I interviewed Chris Burden. I did an oral history with Chris Burden, which turned out to be about six months before he died. And I didn't know when I did the oral history that he had had, he had, had cancer. Mm. He'd had, uh, they discovered the melanoma on his scalp. Nancy had, his wife, Nancy Rubens. I got there and literally turned on the tape, tape recorder. He talked for like nine or ten, nine hours, like straight through. And uh, never offered me anything to eat or drink. I, I brought a little bag of peanuts with me from midday, which we shared. This little like sack of peanuts and a glass of water, went just straight through. And then the next time I went, it was the same thing, straight through, and very candid about his family, and in things that, that I don't think hardly anybody really knew about his, not his just his parents, but his brothers and his sisters, and about all these different kinds of things. And some things. He held back clearly because I've come subsequently to learn these things, but he never said anything had to be held back. But it was—it's a—it's like 250 pages long, and what's great about it is that it really is—he knew. I'm, I'm sure he knew that if he was, he was either going to die or not die. But because he had such a strong scientific background, and he's such a smart person, and he is very has always been very aware of the idea of legacy, he got it all done, and. He's one of the most important artists of his time, and he, it's there for future historians or biographers or whoever wants to use it. Does he mention that he stole Vermonica and made it the LACMA sculpture? Veronica? Vermonica. What's Vermonica? Uh, the Chris Burden light sculpture at LACMA is actually based on a previous work made by a woman at the intersection of Santa Monica and Vermont. Yeah. Santa Monica and Vermont. I'm like thinking. There's like a Staples and the yeah. Metro stop. Yeah. And, and it was an installation of, of the original light fixtures, fixtures in L.A. Okay. It was part of a median okay. that a lot of artists knew about. Okay. So it's basically uh, his piece is, a, is he just put more in a. Yeah. 
in an area, but it was a it was a, a kind of direct oh, copy of this other artist's work. Well, he didn't mention it, and I don't know it, so I can't. Yeah. I, I can't. I couldn't. Bring they it just up. took it down um, a yeah, couple of months ago. Yeah, it's caused some controversy about it because yeah. it just disappeared in the middle of the night, as opposed to somebody deaccessioned it or something. They're like, we're just going to move it over there, and the artist said no. Because when you've moved it, it's removed the context that I had when I put it in there originally. Mm-hmm. So you can either talk to me about it or you can take it down. And so they just took it down. It's a public art piece. Mm-hmm. It was, yes. So it was commissioned by a public art agency. I, they can't take it down. Well, You it, would think. <laughs> that's why there's a little controversy mm-hmm. about that project. And then mm-hmm. um, you saw the thing where Leo DiCaprio is now funding all the Chris Burden sculpture to go LED, right? Oh, Okay. How come you didn't why. fund a lady artist, too? I mean, he has a huge collection. Huge. Yeah, he does. He's very, very educated and yeah. has a knowledgeable collection, but yeah. it just kind of doesn't make sense. Like, why that? Why that piece? Why? Who leaned on you, Leo? Well, also just, I mean, that, it's even a controversial idea that he would take it LED because you must remember the huge controversy about the Felix Chevrolet neon sign mm-hmm. down at the car lot in yes. downtown LA, which is neon. I mean, these things were made with a certain kind of light. That's the light they're supposed to have. And if, and I don't know how Nancy feels about it, but I think Chris would actually have been upset if it had an LED inside of it. He saved them with or without knowing about the Veronica sculpture, which he might have known about. He collected those things for years, like decades. And he didn't, only, didn't have enough. I mean, he had enough. He talked to Michael Govan about it, and they did the drawings for it. And then he called up Michael and said, I need like 30 more. And uh, Like you can just get those at a store right now. He, he, there, thanks to the internet. You know, he had one guy, mm-hmm. he talks about, there's one guy who, of course, being in California, has had an obsession with collecting old, like these little, he liked, his obsession was collecting old cast iron light fixtures. And he had like some land somewhere and he just piles and piles of these old light fixtures that he had just been collecting over the years. And Chris saw them and he bought them all. And he she talks about how he and Nancy, or Nancy talks about it too, how they used to go out to the desert and they would find these, what we call desert rats, these guys out here would like collect stuff and they would go find like some crazy person who'd been collect airplane wings or airplane hulls, you know, they had piles of, you know, this, you know, piles of this, these old aluminum, steel, mountains of stuff and Nancy would say, I'll take them. And he did the same with these. Uh, it cost, to, to, to Michael Govan's credit, it cost double what it was supposed to cost when they first talked about it, and Michael Govan made it happen, and he makes it happen. He, and he, it's an architectural piece, as you know. It's meant to look. Mm-hmm. It ha- it's very, it's very large, and it's meant to look a certain way to fit with the mid-century architecture of that space. Of course, well, not mid-century anymore, but with the yeah. space that, with the Renzo Piano space that's there. But it's it's quite an, it, it certainly has worked out in terms of the public image of the museum. Oh yeah, it's everybody's dating app photo. <laughs> it is everyone. <laughs> everyone. Yeah. And doesn't matter what time of day or night you nope. go there. Right. Nope. Yeah. And you know what? Chris Burden would have loved that. Really? Uh, yeah, he would have loved it. Absolutely. He he loved that it was used. He loved it, and he also loved that he got to do. He talks in the oral history about how Renzo Piano sort of freaked out that. Uh, this piece was basically going to dominate the architecture. Mm-hmm. And Piano, being an astute architect, knew that if this piece went there, no one was going to pen, spend any time looking at his buildings anymore. And uh, he, try, he fought to get it put in the back of the museum where people could hang out near the garden. He kind of floored him, like, hey, just, you know, just, just, just go back, back there. Well, just, there's all this yeah, parkland. Yeah, yeah. You can right. put it there. People can go back and use it there, and they can wander through the park. It'll look really beautiful. It'll be a destination. And Chris was like, no. I want it right it's on Wilshire. in the front. And they had like a little art architecture head bashing, and Chris won. That's awesome. And again, credit to Michael Govan, who's, who did not have to take the easier, softer way. It's always easier to compromise. Well. <laughs> Chris is like, I know a coyote. Come at me. <laughs> I mean, that's a weird bargaining chip at the table. I'm just going to throw it out there. Yeah, absolutely. So... What is a thing in the archives that people wouldn't normally suspect might be there? Like what, as an artist, have they left that's like, hey, that's really helpful and everybody else should do this too? I think it's always, it's really helpful to see what happens when early artists, like in the early careers of artists, which often get hidden away as artists become more successful. I mean, there's, uh, I I took an art, the Robert Overby archive is fantastic. It's enormous. 
And he has a lot of correspondence with other photographers who've gone on to become well-known, Ralph Gibson in particular. But they're like, there are letters, because it's letter writing days and postcard days, and photographers in particular would send postcards back and forth to each other, or prints with little notes jotted on them and post-its and stuff. And it was, it was like just, hey, I'm in, I, this guy's really cool, you should talk to him sometime, his name's Larry Gagosian, he's a new dealer, you know, he's just starting out, and then Robert Overby ends up doing Larry Gagosian's business card. And it's like 1977, you know, and but just seeing Ralph Gibson say, I just met this guy in New York, it looks like he's going to be somebody, or, you know, Ralph Gibson's figuring out how to organize his early, you know, his first catalog, and he can't afford to pay for it, and what can he do to pay for it, and just these, there are small details of how struggling these people were at early stages, and that is for an historian, or a biographer, or a curator, this is important, and if you don't believe it, I mean, right now, just to do a little aside, there's, there are those two huge exhibitions of archival information by the Harold Zeman, but by Harold Zeman, the late great curator who did the Documenta, the, did Documenta Five, and he also did the very important show When Attitude Becomes Form with Lawrence Wiener and all these people, and he, he early an early post-minimalist, early conceptual show from 1968 that was trounced by everybody and so this, these two shows show you his archive and what he th how he thought as a, as a curator and all of the correspondence and the photographs and the data and the uh, checklists and the, the, the everything and everything is so you're looking at primary source material which is what exists in archives and just as someone who writes it's it's somehow very exciting I don't think it's exciting for everyone, but I think it's exciting if you're a writer or a curator or a historian or someone who's interested in the actual history. Because I'm a firm believer in non-revisionist history. And there's a lot of revisionist history now, and I'm, I do not go online to talk about this, but it makes me crazy that people want to rewrite history according to the, way, the ways they, they think things should be today. That includes women's history, that includes black history, and that includes Hispanic history, and includes the oppressed and everything. It's like, no, this is what happened. This is mm -hmm. what it's like today. You cannot rewrite that history so that it conforms to what you believe today because it's just... It's, you weren't even there. Well, it's also, it's just, it, A, it's inaccurate. It sets, it sets a model for a, a, a constructed history that's not based on facts. And facts do exist if you know about primary source archival material, because facts aren't on the internet often, but primary source is someone's handwriting, there's a date, there's a photograph, usually in those days not an altered photograph. You know, there are things that prove where people were, when they were there, and what they really felt like. You know, and that really is something that comes through in, in you know, when my work on Georgia O'Keeffe, there was a ton of Many, many, many attempts to conceal, she herself concealed much of her life history. But if you go back and you dig deep enough, it's there. And the real history is just so much more interesting than the history people try to clean up later in life, I think. That nothing is digitally changed. Yes. I mean, there's you know that it's yeah. there, and I think that's really important. I think it's also important for artists to know the real histories of other artists. There's a lot of a lot of artists that make a lot of assumptions about what it means to be an artist, and I deal with that every day as a teacher. And those elements are super important because it's hard to be an artist. It's really hard. If you don't know that, and if you if you make these assumptions, then you fail instantly because you didn't sort sort of make it right out of school or something. And I think I think those things are really important for everybody, but particularly for artists who read things in a magazine and you think, oh, that, that person popped out and was famous. It's like, it doesn't work like that. And maybe it works like that now, but we don't know where those instant artists are going to be in 20 years no. or 30 years. Yeah, and, they can be or, gone. Or five years. And, and we already have seen, all of us, the skyrocketing fame of a young artist who is now like, who? Who don't they don't or they're in fact some group show somewhere and the stuff is like the prices are completely disparate uh, from what right. they were ten years ago and it's it's a, it's something that uh, serious artists should really be concerned with Absolutely. you know controlling how their work goes out there but that's 
it also is generational. I mean, there's a, a whole generation of, you know, you teach, a whole yeah. generation of younger artists who just have no clue. It's true. And, and they want to start at 10,000, and that's their bottom line. And it's just, yeah. that's, it's so self-defeating, I think. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I, why I started uh, writing about and started GIST is, is I wanted to get as much as much information to artists as possible because when artists are clued in, they have a much better sense of what's going on. And there's so many ways that the art world works that if you make an assumption, you got to get really smart as an artist. I think you have to know more than your dealer. I think you have to know more than the curator. I think you have to be really sharp about how stuff happens or you may never have a career at all. Getting your shit together is an invaluable tool for artists. We have resources, consulting services, books, and now the very latest edition of our software for keeping artists organized, GIST Pro 4.5. It's compatible with Windows, Mac, and yes, we busted our butts to make sure it works on High Sierra. Run and tell that. Better yet, pick up a free 30-day trial of our software at our website and see if it's for you. If you like it, it's a one-time purchase. If not, well, we haven't met any artist who hasn't. Pick up your copy at gystink.com. Or if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can become a donating member on patreon.com slash artworldpodcast. We'd love to share our bonus content and brand new merch with you, but we can only do so if you're a member patreon.com slash artworldpodcast. I'll give you two examples that have come up recently. One was when I did the oral history with Andrea Zatel. She's in New York trying to figure out how to be an artist, and mm -hmm. she gets a part-time job, actually maybe a full-time job, like just as a person at Pat Hearn Gallery. And she talks extensively about how much she learned from working in a gallery. Amen. Which is what <laughs> Megan has experience with here, at Patrick Painter. And, and then I interviewed... A, a younger artist named Barry Zipperstein, who's kind of coming up and has and talked about her own experience of working for Rosamond Felsen. Rosamond's wonderful. Ro she talks about <laughs> Rosamond and, and being wonderful. And she was Bergamot when she had access to Rosamond, Frank Lloyd, and, and Patrick Painter at a time when Bergamot was very lively. And she learned so much about that experience. And both of them, interestingly enough, Zatel and Zipperstein, decided to have parallel careers doing something that was not teaching because they're both very frank about that being this canard that has evolved in the art world where you're not you're going to spend all this money for your graduate school because you have to have an mfa to teach and then you're going to get a job as a tenure track professor somewhere which is not going to happen and probably Probably not going to happen, 99% of the time. So mm -hmm. then you have all this debt, and then you have, uh, you're running around from art school to art school teaching these, these courses, trying to make ends meet, you know, waiting tables, doing all these dead-end jobs, and then you don't have time to make any art. And that there is, she, I, I think there, the people are still supporting what is really an untruth there. They're giving the students the idea that somehow this is all going to work out. And it's not for 99% of the artists. I mean, and, and they, they then find themselves unable to do what they were meant to do or want to do. And it's, it's kind of, a, it's just, it just has to stop. But I really liked what she did. I mean, Barry wanted to go into ceramics. She wasn't a ceramic. She went to CalArts. No, she, I know. She, yeah. uh, you know, so she... She also worked for me for a little while, too. Oh, perfect. For Gist. So oh, perfect. So she, she like, learned oh, all that stuff that. before she started her career. Oh, I didn't know that yeah. she did that for Gist. Well, yeah. that's fantastic. Well, that was then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And then making a decision, okay, I'll have a production ceramic line that will incorporate my interests as an artist, but I will also eventually be able to get back to making my sculpture with ceramics, which is what I want to do. But I don't have to be dependent on the sale of a $5,000 work of art. Yeah. I can have this, which will, you know, and, and learning to run a business, which successful artists are often capable of running business. They, they, oh, absolutely. It, those are good skills to have. I mean, that's why I pass all that information on because a lot of people think that, I mean, artists are still told that they're lousy business people. They're actually excellent business people on some level. Not everybody is good at everything, but it's amazing. So if you give the skills to an artist and they can do it themselves, then they're not necessarily stuck with relying on one person to make their career operate. And I think that misnomer is, it's dangerous for artists. 
so that the more artists know, the more they can make intelligent decisions on their own terms or even design their own career, which is much easier now because there's so many options for artists. Absolutely. And also there's more like they want to avoid encouraging artists to be self-defeating, to be victims, to be there wasn't that much awareness of the idea of being a victim of anything really 50 years ago, you know, I just was like, oh, well, you know, but I think there is much more awareness of taking have taking responsibility for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a little bit of this is what the Paul again, the, the sad part about politics today, I think the internet politics again is like, it's always someone else's fault, right? You know, now there are things that people do that are bad, and it should they should not be allowed to get away with. But it cannot always be someone else's fault, right? You know, you have a reason. If you're someplace and something's happening, there's always the question: Why are you there anyway? You know, not just with a lot of things, and uh, or what is your part? Like, or how did you deal with it? And this is there's they really we need really need to bring back that sensibility that people are responsible. You know, I am responsible. Whatever happened to that slogan? I am responsible. <laughs> they didn't teach that in Dare Week. We didn't get glitter wristbands <laughs> and like pencils about it. So, uh. and and it has and and, and it, we talk. They talk. I don't know. I don't have children, but I'll say and and, and that's intentional. But I, I, uh, I'm happily married, but I didn't want to have the responsibility of 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 raising children. But I do think probably if you raise children to feel like that they get carried taken care of all the time, then. Mm-hmm. Why do they all ever feel like they don't have to get taken care of all the time? Well, I think the worst thing an artist can think of is that people will take care of them. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I just need to get this. I just need a dealer. I just need a gallery. Oh, I see. It's like Ruby Lerner always says, well, that's when your troubles really start. <laughs> so you have to know all this stuff. And, you know, you have to, you have to realize the minute you do that, you give away your power. The minute you take your hands off the steering wheel, someone else is driving the car. And that's a really important thing for artists to recognize. Is they don't, like, I think some artists are self-defeating about wanting to control everything with their dealer, and it alienates their dealer, and they can be a pain in the neck, and then they, don't, they have other problems. But an awareness of you, know, you can't just give up your power to that way. And not just in art dealing, in any area of life. You can't give it up to your editor. You can't give it up to your boss at Otis, your boss at the archives, I mean, you have to take responsibility for what you're doing. I'm trying to get artists to think of everybody they work with as a partnership mm-hmm. so that there's equal responsibility because you can't rely on somebody else and you mm. can't control everybody else. So if you if you go into a relationship with a gallery and you think about it as, a, as an equal partnership and you do your part and the gallery does their part, it's gonna completely change the nature of that relationship and you're not like being railroaded into into something, but if you start it out right, it actually makes a lot more sense. Same thing with a curator. Don't alienate your curator and piss them off because it's it's a very tiny art world. Mm. And I can tell you that if, if someone starts to work with an artist, they're going to call every other curator you worked with or the last curator. They're going to find out what I you're like. That's extremely true. It happens I, all the time. I talked to someone yesterday. I talked to a dealer yesterday. I was ex- complimenting the work I saw in a show. And we were talking about how probably some of the best work we'd seen it done by this artist in a number of years and that how great it was that this person had come where, to where he was. And and then it was explained to me by him, and I've heard it from many other people, that he's such a pain to work with that he can't move his career forward because curators literally roll their eyes and say, I'm not, I'm not signing up for that. Right. Because life is short. And if there's a talented artist who's not a pain in the neck... <laughs> it's a much better situation. Don't choose them. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone's time is limited. That's true. That's true. Adding grief to your life is really not a good strategy. <laughs> well, you know, there's a certain amount of gratitude that I think a lot of successful artists now have. I mean, I, I, I know some artists who are just like, they're grateful to be operating they're like they're nice they're grateful they mm-hmm. real and that's a very good place to be it's a, a weird thing to run into artists who are just like obnoxiously self-centered and and uh and ungrateful it, it, it doesn't doesn't make any of us happy a lot of people have been really against the idea of artists knowing how things work particularly dealers because mm-hmm. it's you know, harder to swindle someone who knows s- what's up you know that <laughs> That scenario, so there's, a, so there's a real backlash against the, quote, professionalism of the artist, mm-hmm. but it also comes from very specific places. And I think if, if you engage in a relationship in which that other person is going to try to control you, it's never going to work. 
I think you have to do your homework before you even engage in partnerships as well. Mm -hmm. And that's something else that I think is really important. So if, if, if an artist knows how everything works and they're kind of together, they're always going to get more stuff done. They're always going to have better relationships with curators and with anybody that they deal with. And how realistic is it that you're expecting your living to come from this dealer right. 100%? <laughs> But that boy, that's that's an assumption right. that a lot of people make. Yeah, if you work in a gallery for like three and a half minutes, you will not allow that to happen anymore. Mm -hmm. Is that right? <laughs> or you realize what the reality is. Oh, but. yeah, because financially, like working at the gallery, all the behind the scenes stuff that they don't want the artists to know is the most powerful information that you can have as an artist. It's the weapons they're going to like use with and or against you. Mm -hmm. So... It's really telling when the gallery can't pay their bills until the next show sells out. Is it like when you work there, you wish you could tell the artist, hey, this is what's going on, X, Y, and Z, but you can't. I know artists are great gossips. I think the word travels fast, don't you? Gallerinas are great gossips. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they know everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And but, and our, but artists also, if they have a bad experience, they are not quiet about it, at least not to me. I mean, if people have a bad experience, it's like... This happened. This happened. They're, they're, I mean, they, people seem very chatty about their bad experiences as well. As probably more than their good experiences, to be honest, right? Oh yeah, just go yeah. to any art dinner party. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. It's just right. like you know, one like, scandal what? after the other. Yeah. It's like you know, oh, and then I mean, what's interesting to me is that mm -hmm. some artists say, you know, that's the way it works, and I'm kind of like, uh, it doesn't have to work that way. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an odd thing. You got to make your own successes. You got to put some effort towards it. If you want it to be your own, absolutely. Otherwise, it, you just end up being whatever the powers that be turn you into. I get a lot of emails from artists about a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, looking for advice. Boy, the stories are just incredible. I keep thinking that I'm not going to be shocked again, that, it, that I've probably heard everything in the universe. It just, it's unbelievable. Well, and I don't even know if it's, based on malfeasance or evil doing, I often think the dealers themselves get in way over their heads. Yes. And they don't intend to get as far behind as they get. And there's a lot of the Ponzi scheme thinking, like yeah. I'll, I'll pay, borrow from Peter to pay Paul, then I'll borrow and I'll, buy, and I'll get caught up eventually. And if that, But it doesn't have to go on for very long, like a year of that, and you are can be in some serious trouble. You can be into deep trouble. And then you really don't have, I mean, there's really not, liquidity in the art world. I mean, theoretically, you've got all this works of art, these works of art that are worth $50,000, $100,000, but are... you got to have people willing to buy them from you and work with you. As Patty Fowler used to say, art is a great investment until you try to sell it. <laughs> and she was right. You know, yeah. you can have work that's, you know, by name artists, you mm -hmm. know, artists who are cover of art forum, artists that are good, the work is good, it's in good condition, but somebody somewhere needs to want that work of art at that period of time for that amount of money. When you need you know, it, when you yeah. need it. And, and and I think that that is also part of the success thing you see on the internet. It's like you, nobody ever thinks it through, like this might not be, mm -hmm. I mean, it might be a priceless collection, but you have to find someone to buy it. There's no requirement to be a dealer and so a lot of people open up galleries and don't know what they're doing and then they get into trouble and then you would think that a lot of people would hear all these stories but I know a lot of people that get into a situation and they can't get out because they didn't hear about it and I think that's a thing of like kind of not doing your homework before you sign on to somebody and say yes I'm going to work with you it seems to me that you would ask some questions for, also, for younger artists it's also an example of magical thinking absolutely and that magical thinking goes back to personal responsibility which is what am I doing and why am I here and who am I dealing with and that includes your professional life your sexual life your political life your personal life what are you doing and why are you here the magical thinking everybody has magical thinking but the, but mm -hmm. but it's uh, it's probably even more pervasive in a creative community where you kind of always hope for the best and you're always everyone's sort of desperately hoping for success everywhere in Los Angeles all the time like this will be the gig that you know sets me straight or this will be the, it puts me on an easy street but magical thinking is extremely dangerous for all of us and it, yeah. it, it also is uh, infantilizing so you get to be the perpetual child not coming to terms with the reality that's true of the artists and the dealers and uh and probably writers, you know, one this this will be the screen. I've watched two different people lose their houses on the promise of selling a screenplay, like having people say to them, 
the check is coming, the check is coming for like long enough time that they've actually lost their houses to the bank. And all because of this unwillingness to go, no, the check isn't coming. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) Right, Yeah. and that's true. I think uh, think it's magical thinking of this time it'll be different. I mean, you you have such an amazing long history of information about artists. I'm wondering if there is some things that you would tell artists now that you think are really important for them to think about. Personal responsibility. It's it's a and they have to do it want to do it more than they want to do anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, or but I think that I also am uh, interested in all parallel forms of visual language. Like people are always giving me a hard time because I love clothes. I love dressing up. I love buying clothes. I love fashion. And it's this completely shallow thing that the art world doesn't approve of. But I love it. And but it's I, your art form. I mean, you're a visual person, so maybe you substituted it. For, I love, you know? I love clothes. <laughs> I love furniture. Uh, I love dishes. I love architecture. I love fabrics. And I love everything in the visual world is appealing to me. And one of the most refreshing things that's happened in the internet partially is that there's so much more hybridity, so much mixture mm-hmm. now in artists in the way that like artists like to go back to the woman we were just discussing, the fact that an artist like Barry Zipperstein would could could have a pottery line, a ceramic line, and a sculpture line based in clay, having gone to CalArts, and not think that that's incredibly limiting and do it as a woman, that's like to me like a model of like what could happen. Now she may not end up being you know with Davis Werner or you know Hauser and Worth and you know in the, in the next documenta, but the fact or she may. But the fact is, it's a different. The fact there's so many, there are so many more options, and I think it's mm-hmm. so healthy. And I've always liked that artists can go. I like it better that artists can go back and forth. I think that the idea that you can only do one thing because that's the way modernism was written. The canon mm-hmm. of modernism is you have to have a pure, a pure line of inquiry. Uh, for one thing, it's hist- it's historically inaccurate, and we always find out that you know these artists who had like a pure line of inquiry were interested in all these other things, like Donald Judd. If you go to Marfa and you see where Donald Judd lived, you just think, oh my God, look at all this, all these knickknacks, look at all this stuff. Or, he was a hoarder. He was a hoarder. <laughs> or you go to Andy yeah. Warhol and you see all of the cookie jars. I mean, or you see the, yeah. also the Renaissance paintings. I mean, you see artists are interested in visual stuff. Yep. It's, it's the visual world that they live in. And it's only really a historical model or a curatorial model that it has to be line- precise and linear and confined and separated. And that's what you'll also find fascinating by the Harold Zeman archives is the, the great voraciousness with which he took on the visual world, which could be everything from his baggage claim tickets to uh, little just little things he collected to his, his v- visual information interests were vast and interesting. And that, to me, is so much more lively than trying to lock it something into a critical analysis of a particular, you know, especially one with a particularly heavy, politically motivated orientation. Well, it's one of the reasons I've been talking to artists a long time about the idea of hybrid careers as opposed to just one straight linear thing, mm-hmm. because I think that that's what artists kind of naturally do. But mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of artists that think about. Like they get that job as a waiter, but it doesn't do anything for their life or their practice. And mm-hmm. so I'm trying to get artists to think more about that relationship, like what Barry did, or a lot of artists are doing, where they're creating this kind of hybrid career where you have a day job and then you have your art practice, but it's really not about both of those things are important. Artists are interested in a lot of things. So we used to spend a lot of time talking about that stuff and, and you know, really looking at models of other artists that have done that. There's a person in France who is studying artists who run a business as an art practice around the world. And it's been really fascinating to understand there's a lot more people than just me who do that. When you find that community where everybody around you is telling you that you're nuts, and then you find a worldwide community of maybe 40 people that are that have been doing this for a long time, it's actually interesting. But at the same time, you know, you're pushing that envelope and you're doing something different and trying to get artists to experience something that they want to do supports them, but also 
is, is part of their interest mm-hmm. is really important. And, and so there's a lot of artists that have come out of CalArts that have been tr- kind of trying this strategy hmm. where, you know, there was a woman who graduated and, and all her work was about electricity. And so she got a job as an apprentice with an electrician. You know, to because she could get all this stuff that she needed and wanted. And then, you know, other people are, you know, doing other things. And I think it's an interesting way to think about how you create a life as opposed to just how you make art. You know, that's so much a part of our art making process. You know, all these things that we're interested in. And it's a completely postmodern perspective. Absolutely. And it's one that is absolutely healthier uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and, but, and redefining the sort of the canon of modernism is very much what's happened since like the 1960s. It's, we've been doing it for a long time now. Right. But I think the internet has been helpful in this way. I think that probably artists are more able to mm-hmm. access more information and operate in different ways and not be as defeated by some of these older ideas than perhaps they were in the past. Right. At least you see a lot of it. And there's a lot of stuff going on. And it's I can't keep up with it. I mean, that's it, there is just... There's a lot of good stuff going on, a lot of good shows to see, but I really feel completely defeated <laughs> by, <laughs> by the attempts to keep up with it just in L.A. Well, there's hundreds and of things going on, and there's almost 100 artist-run spaces now in L.A. Are there really? There used to be three. Wow. When I started 100? Side Street, there's almost 100. Good Lord. And a lot of them have been started by artists just out of school. They're They're creating a model for a community. It's sort of like... Uh, when artist-run spaces were started in the 60s and the 70s, and artists decided they had to take control of their careers on some level because it just was a disaster. It's happening again. I think artists now are understanding that, uh, you know, that, that self-determination is really important, not just to keep their work on track and to make their own work, because so many artists write to me and say, I'm so tired of my gallery telling me that they want more blue ones, you know, and you have to understand that that's a part of that choice. Mm. If you can make a choice on your own terms, then it could be a much better sort of situation. All that information now is very easy to get. It used to be incredibly difficult to get. Nobody would tell you anything. Mm. So I wish I had had myself when I was a young artist because I know so much more now. And I'm trying to tell everybody everything that Mm. I know it's information that you can use to create something. I think that you can almost create a life as an artist, if you think about it right, as opposed to having, oh my God, my life is horrible in order to make art. Mm. I, I think there's we need to kind of shift the, the conversation a little bit. Yes, absolutely. And that in, in itself is sort of historical fiction set up through mm-hmm. writers about, you know, whether it's Van Gogh or it's Pollock or whatever, this kind uh, of myth. The romantic artist. <laughs> yes, this myth that you have, you're this tortured, miserable soul that right. someone's going to take care of. And, you know, it's it's not a myth. I mean, these were very self-destructive, you know, diff- mentally ill I mean, or self-destructive happens. people. Of course it does. And, but it is, it's so much more, it's, it's a different era. And it's really like the, everything that postmodernism, I don't know when we're going to start use, stop using the word postmodernism. We've been using it now for decades. But when we get so confused, we can't. <laughs> But there are just the fact is there's just no dominant ism, and that true. is probably a really healthy thing. And artists run spaces; it's something fun for them to do. And hopefully, also, you know, I go to I go to galleries sometimes, and the pri- opening price point for an artist, unknown artist, will be eight thousand dollars, you know, eleven thousand oh, yeah. dollars. Well, that's not really impulse buying for people. And so, there, where does that work go? Back to the right. studio, right? And mm-hmm. so that it sits in their studio, and or maybe not if they're lucky. But it's I think that the idea of building from little to big on a slower level, a more affordable level, is so much healthier. And I know a lot of artists try to do that. They say, I don't want to... I right, wanna. but a lot of galleries think that they have to sell that in order to break even. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that it doesn't sell, and then they're back into that situation. So I think a lot more collaboration would be smarter, I mean, if an artist is willing to let something happen, then, I mean, getting that work out is really important. And if you overprice it, it doesn't get out. And then the artist doesn't have new work to make. And then, so it's it's kind of a self-defeating, you know, proposition. I agree. I agree. I'm just glad I don't have to do it for a living. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've remained an artist all my life still. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes it's just, it's nuts. It's It's nuts. We've hit about an hour, so okay. we can start wrapping up. 
One thing that we have all our guests do that I'm going to cut down into a super thing is introduce yourself and you'll say like, and I'm an art critic or, and I'm at KCRW or something into that line. So I would say How like, do you define yourself these days? Oh yeah. Well, I define myself, I just started putting down writer because <laughs> I couldn't really, uh, I, haven't, I haven't been a curator and I don't suppose I ever will be able to become a curator. It just has uh, too many moving parts. I like to be by myself in a room writing and I like to interview people and talk to them and I like to do research. So I just put all that into writer. And I write nonfiction and I write uh, a kind of literary nonfiction and I write some criticism I try, so I, I, I define myself as someone who writes about art. That's, okay. that's the nutshell. The nutshell is I define myself as someone who writes about art. I'll start, and then Karen does hers, and then you do yours. All right. Hi, I'm Megan Flanders, and I'm an artist. Hi, I'm Karen Atkinson, and I'm an artist. I'm Hunter Drohoyoska, Philp, and I write about art. Perfect. Yay! Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>